everybody, welcome to another episode of Two Throw Over Noise, your weekly baseball history podcast. I'm half of the show. My name is Jeff. The other half is uh, I'm gonna let you introduce your 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 own self today. Hello, my name is Mark and Mark A. Johnston, and I'm a baseball freak. The A stands for A's, right? If as long, yeah. If that's what you, uh, if that'll make you happy, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> very Athletics. Easily pleased. Yeah. So uh, we're back. This is show. Wow. Show number 203 of uh, your favorite baseball, weekly baseball history podcast. Mark, it's spring training time. I am on a new team. I'm a cub now. I've, I've, I've joined a wood bat league here. I'm a cub. Kind of hard to have to buy. Uh, something from a team that uh, Ricky Henderson never played for. Yeah, you haven't done that, have you? It's kind of hard to find a team that Ricky Henderson never played for either. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I definitely don't want to injure myself before opening day. So let's go ahead and get into BP and warm up. Mark, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, there's a pitch clock this year in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I kind of noticed that. Uh, I I found this uh, this quote i'm actually rereading one of ron luciano's uh, books ron luciano former umpire we've done a whole show on ron luciano if you want to go back i don't know how long ago it was but he is uh, quite a character he's written several books i found this about uh, a somewhat of a pitch clock in major league baseball Several times throughout the 1970s, and this is from one of his books, so I'm gonna I'm gonna read part of it. They gave pitchers 20 seconds to deliver the ball from the time they received it from the catcher, and over the course of a game, easily saved three or four minutes. These are this is what he described uh, went on at the beginning of each season. Each umpire was given a stopwatch to use in games. These watches were so badly made that Mickey Mouse only had one hand. Naturally, the first time they were dropped on the floor and jumped upon, they stopped working. (laughs) So to convince the league that we were checking to make sure no crazy pitcher tried to take 21 seconds, some of us would take the silver lining from chewing gum wrappers out to second base and pretend it was a watch. The fans would see us looking at something silver and assumed that it was a stopwatch. Admittedly, it was difficult to determine when 20 seconds had elapsed by watching a gum wrapper, so the infraction was only called when the umpiring crew had to catch the last flight out of town that night. <laughs> I like it. That's funny, though, that if that really happened, if they were given watches and said yeah. to make this happen, because that would have to be kind of rough if there was no actual like countdown clock. How would yeah, you know? Yeah, unless you got some kind of a timer, it, it's uh, not going to be real easy. You know, I'm getting used to it. Um, I'm again, I'm not really watching games as much as I'm listening to them because the anxiety of seeing that big clock is something for me. But uh, I've seen a couple of bugs with it on, and I can I can pay less attention to the score bugs. So um, so far, though, I've got to admit I don't hate it. We'll see in the regular season how many games are decided because of this, and we'll we'll also see how much time this cuts off of a game. Interested to see in a regular season game. I did also see that, you know, they are also going to keep a lot closer time when a pitcher comes into a game in relief. They're going to, to 
police that time a lot more. So I saw there is a theory that more pitchers are going to ride the bullpen carts out of the bullpen because the clock starts when you set foot on the infield. Oh, okay. So if they can get a little bit closer to the pitcher's mound, who knows? I mean, maybe we've got uh, we've got more bullpen carts. We're hoping. Sorry, yeah. Hey, it, I can see that happening. And we like bullpen carts, so fingers we crossed. We do. Love them. So uh, last week, uh, this is from college baseball, Northern Kentucky's Liam McFadden Ackman. Liam McFadden. I wonder if he's got any. Like Scottish in him. Not at all. Yeah, no. Not. Well, he hit two grand slams in the first inning of a game. Two grand slams, one inning. Uh, he finished the game with a cycle. He went five for six, 10 RBI in a 27 to four win over Western Michigan. Wow. So you can put this in the book. In 20 years, Liam will undoubtedly have a kid who's going to be a star in Major League Baseball. That's right. Because we only have one other case of precedence. And yes. if we look at that, we must conclude that Liam McFadden Ackerman Jr. will be a thing in like 2043-ish. <laughs> and that's what you got out of that amazing day. That's what I got. It's exactly what I got. It's the first thing I thought of is I know who the next superstar is going to be out of Northern Kentucky. Yeah. Well, it's tough, man. Northern Kentucky's got a lot of stars. And I don't think we have enough Scottish superstars in baseball either. Not enough that like actually have the accent and wear a tartan, you know? <laughs> well, I don't know if he did but, or if he does, but he should. I will put it out there. <laughs> I think somebody on the Savannah Bananas does that, though. In fact, it might be Eric Burns. That might be who I'm thinking of the manager. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, let's see. Something else I learned this past week. So, Mark, I, I know we've discussed it. I don't think either of us play fantasy baseball anymore, but we have in the past. Or do you still play it? No, I haven't for a while. No. Well, I Tim Kirkjian, who is really one of the few baseball analysts on ESPN I can stomach anymore. Tim Kirkjian does something rather odd with some of his friends. He is in an umpire ejection league. <laughs> they they all pick a, their team of umpires and then they count up how many ejections each umpire has which i thought was an interesting i think you might get an uptick in in ejections this year with the with the pitch clock yeah it's gonna add a level of tension and just one more thing to call a guy yeah you know? <laughs> so i don't know i was thinking this might be interesting maybe we pick a couple of umpires we know who will win i mean i don't win anything when we do these things but maybe we will throw together an umpire ejection league i gotta guess cb buckner and uh, angel hernandez have got to be the first two picks right that's my first thought yes because they're so bad that they're going to get more arguments than anybody else but this is true all right i saw this uh, another thing related to the clock baseball historian on Twitter, you can find them at baseball h s t r n. That's historian with no vowels. If you're paying attention, and uh, they tweeted this proposal: MLB gets rid of the pitch clock, but only if the players promise to start lighting each other on fire again between pitches. And then he had a, a gif of somebody giving a hot foot. <laughs> this was my thought. This is my proposal. All right, let's hear it. 
For every hot foot a team gives during the game, can't be pregame, got to be during the game, they get one clock violation overlooked. Hmm. But if they give one to somebody on the other team, five violations overlooked. Ooh, wow, yeah. yeah. That's a tough one to do. Yeah, one more caveat I came up with. If they give one to the anthem singer while singing the anthem, no clock violations for the entire game. <laughs> Man, those handsome singers uh, would have to watch their backs pretty closely. If Enrico Palazzo's out there belting away the, the Star Spangled Banner and you stick some gum with some matches and a cigarette on the back of his foot and manage to successfully light it, I think I think it's worth it. No clock violations for you. Well, yeah, man. I mean, I think that's very realistic. Very, very realistic. And again, we have already established that uh, the higher ups in Major League Baseball, they listen to the show quite religiously. So I think this one will probably get some uh, some discussion. Let's get into trivia. I asked a question last week and I knew it was going to be a hard one. This was kind of on purpose because they they started to get a little bit easier. And we're getting close to wrapping up the trivia part of the show because we're going to have... Thankfully, we're going to have some debuts in a little while. I enjoy the the debuts much more than the trivia. But this was the question I asked last week. I said, neither the Marlins nor the Rays have ever had a gold glove winner at shortstop. So of the teams that have had a gold glove shortstop, who has gone the longest without winning one? So, Mark. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. Do you have any any guesses? I, I got zero. I mean, I'd just be picking a random team if I guessed. Yeah, this is kind of what I expected. I got a couple answers. First of all, the usual crew, Brian Krause. Andrew Harner is back. He sent us a nice message. He's catching up on some podcasts. Shane Swarznak and uh, our 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 listener that likes to send a message instead of a name. Uh, they just said, uh, with their correct answer, they their name, make runs batted ends great again. It's a little, it's a, it's a callback. Just a little while ago. That's good. But they did get the correct answer. The correct answer is the Minnesota Twins. And ah. Zoyo Versailles in 1965. Zoyo, who, he's Cuban, so ver, according to the pronunciation guide here, Versailles is how he pronounced it. It looks like Versailles if he was French, but he's not, so... Uh, he was born in uh, in Havana, Cuba, though, and ended up with a 12-year career. Now, Zoyo is considered widely to have been the least deserving MVP, league MVP ever in the history of the award. Um, <laughs> he had one great year, 1965. He was an all-star twice in those 12 years, but for the Twins in 1965, let's see, he led the league in plate appearances, at-bats, runs scored, Doubles, triples, this was the third year in a row he led the league in triples, but he also led the league in strikeouts uh, as well as total bases. He won the league MVP hitting only 273, a 319 on base percentage. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, 19 home runs, 77 RBI, 27 stolen bases, only uh, five caught. But those 122 strikeouts to lead the league. Now, if we were playing uh, Wax Packs Heroes and got his card, he's still worth 7.2 war for that year. Wow. 
which is more than half of his career 12.6 war. He did win a gold glove that year. Uh, As I said, he was an all-star one of two times that he was an all-star. But uh, he last won that award in 1965. Last time Twins had a gold glove shortstop. The second longest is the Boston Red Sox and Rick Burleson in 1979. Hmm. Okay. Well, I got to hand it to you. That was a tough one. Yeah, that one I knew was going to be a bit tougher, and it it proved my hypothesis quite well. So this one, uh, I'm not sure. This one's, I think this one's not easy, but it's it's more doable. And last week, if you remember, longtime listener Marshall sent us something that I had literally seen right before he sent it and got a little worried for Marshall. He's thinking like us. Well, he sent us something else this week that I had not seen. And uh, as a reward, and because I'm just getting tired of trying to find tough trivia, I'm going to turn something that he sent us into this week's question. So this is essentially from a listener. All right. Who has the most seven plus innings pitched games with zero walks? So Mm. who holds the record for throwing seven or more innings in a game with zero walks? Who's done that the most? Wow. Okay. Let uh, let everybody marinate on that. We'll come back to that next week and give uh, everybody the answer. All right. Mark, uh, ground screw's going to come out here, do their thing. We're getting ready to start the main part of the show. As I mentioned, we're, we are right in the thick of it. We are in the middle of spring training. Opening day is just a couple of weeks away. And with that, I thought, well, we're in the middle of spring training. Let's talk about spring training and where exactly it came from. Who invented spring training? Oh, that's a good guess. I mean, a good question. Well, yeah, well, let's find out. So spring training unlike New Year's Day, is, as baseball fans, we know that is the actual start of the new year. We should actually get calendars made up just where the new year starts when pitchers and catchers report, or maybe even truck day. I don't know. It's all good. But uh, guys wearing odd numbers with no names on the back of their jerseys, announcers joking about their scorecard looking like the beautiful mind meme, and breaking glass sounds. Uh, every foul ball brought to you by the nearest <laughs> local windshield company. So come mid-February, Florida and Arizona become baseball meccas for baseball fans. But just as almost everything in baseball, it was not always this way. While some in big baseball will try to credit noted racist Cap Anson as the person who started spring training, it actually started long before that. It was actually the old New York Mutuals in 1869, led by their owner, Boss Tweed, who made their way down to New Orleans, Louisiana to shake off the winter rust. Tweed was a very, very, I'm going to add a third, very corrupt New York politician who was convicted of stealing more than $200 million from taxpayers in the late 1800s. Yeah, Boss Tweed was a sweetheart of a guy. Yeah, $200 million in the 1800s. That's like many Machado money today, right? <laughs> it's, that's a lot of money. So uh, Charles Fountain, an author, he wrote a comprehensive book about spring training called Under the March Sun, the Story of Spring Training, where he notes that early spring training was mostly about conditioning and getting back into baseball shape rather than working on baseball skills or pitcher's fielding practice, all that kind of stuff. 
Players spent the bulk of their spring training taking long hikes and doing body weight exercises to lose those extra LBs that they'd put on while working their winter jobs that they actually needed to, uh, to, to work at to be able to put food on the table when it wasn't baseball season. This is a quote from the book. Quote, Though there were some throwing and some hitting, much of spring training in those years was given over to long morning hikes of two to seven miles medicine balls, and Indian club workouts. An Indian club is something akin to a weighted bat, with maybe some hot baths thrown in to boil out the alcoholic microbes, end quote. Is that how you do that? I guess so. I guess uh, hot baths are good for hangovers. Uh, Well, I'm sure that, you know, medicine back then is just as good as modern medicine. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And, you know, long morning hikes. Very, very romantic. Uh, How can you not be romantic about baseball? There you go. So a year later, the Cincinnati Reds became the first team to venture down south, beginning in New Orleans, just as the Mutuals had done, and playing roughly a dozen games throughout the region. But uh, getting back to noted racist Cap Anson, and I don't think we ever just say Cap Anson anymore here, right? It's, it's, I believe it has to be pre, uh, pre. Precursor. Yeah, his, his first and middle names are noted racist, and then Cap Anson. Uh, yeah, I think he had it changed. Yeah, well, we're yeah. changing it for sure. Uh, <laughs> he is sometimes credited with "quote unquote" inventing spring training by taking his Chicago White Sox south as the player manager in the 1880s. Originally, though, noted racist was against heading south to prepare for the upcoming season because he thought players suffered from more sore muscles and were more susceptible to getting colds upon returning back home where it was still cold and they were starting their season. Regardless, after noted racist, won two championships in the first two years where he took his team south. Everybody, of course, had to go south after that to prepare for the season. And thus, Hot Springs, Arkansas became the hotbed for teams. So popular, in fact, was Hot Springs that three different fields had to be built to house all of the teams venturing south. I spent a weekend in Hot Springs once, an old job I had. It's pretty cool. They got a, they got a racetrack. It, they got all these uh, hotels and all these hot springs is, is what they've got. And it's, it used to be a hangout for criminals and, and gangsters. Like Boss um, Tweet. Right. And they would, they would go south for the winter and they would hang out in hot springs. And, and it, was, uh, it was considered a place that was, you didn't pull out any hits there. It was time off. Now, any idea? I couldn't find anything explaining how Hot Springs was named. They got plenty of hot springs there, yeah. Oh, okay, all right. I just, I wasn't sure about that. Well, yeah. <laughs> one of the teams that uh, trained in hot springs at one point was the Boston Red Sox, even back in 1918. So they were uh, training there for a little while, and they were shorthanded for one of their exhibition games against the Pittsburgh Pirates. So in a pinch, they stuck young pitcher, a guy named Babe Ruth, at first base for this game. His first time actually playing in the field defensively, at the plate, Ruth pounded two home runs that game, the second of which was estimated at 573 feet, which, (laughs) if we're being honest, might be a little bit of an exaggeration. That's quite a home run. Yeah, so regardless, the ball did leave the ballpark, and it landed in a pond of the Arkansas Alligator Farm and Petting Zoo, which I have to question if an alligator petting zoo was ever a good idea. 
<laughs> How do you have? Okay, yeah. So the AAFPZ is still around, and I did just make up that acronym, but I'm sure it's gonna gonna be a thing now. Uh, there is a plaque at this place remembering the babe shot right there along the mummified carcass of a totally real merman. Wow. Did you, did you, I'm supposing you did not go to the Arkansas alligator farm and petting zoo. No, I didn't get there. I heard that the alligator petting zoo actually sells prosthetic limbs in the gift shop. Yes, they have a booming business. (laughs) (laughs) They do. Uh, Let's see. Other early destinations for teams to train were noted balmy locales in February and March, such as Tulsa, Oklahoma, the aforementioned New Orleans, Louisiana, Macon, Georgia, and, of course, Dawson Springs, Kentucky. Very warm. Eventually, teams decided on Florida as the weather was a bit better down there, so they decided to train there. And then at least half of major league clubs have always been there since. Teams playing each other in Florida are said to be in the Grapefruit League. One explanation for this name is a story that we talked about a while ago. I think it was on a uh, Tales from the Dugout episode where Dodgers manager Wilbert Robinson tried to catch a baseball that was going to be thrown from an airplane. Problem being the uh, plane involved in this stunt, the, the, the stunt that was to throw a baseball out of the plane, forgot to take a baseball with them. So... <laughs> Since everybody in Florida carries a grapefruit with them at all times, it's part of being a Floridian, they decided to throw that instead, but didn't tell anybody on the ground. So Robinson got clobbered by this thing that was much larger than a baseball, uh, which he was (laughs) expecting. And who knows, might have been traveling near terminal velocity at this point, but it exploded in his glove, leading him to believe that some part of his body had just... (laughs) (laughs) taken damage and that he was going to die so believe it or not the detroit tigers were the first team to hold spring training in arizona oh wow this is back in 1929 but it was just a one-time deal then leave it to uh, show favorite bill vet to shake things up in baseball before he owned a major league club, Vec was the owner of the minor league Milwaukee Brewers, who just so happened to train in Florida. So one day, Bill's uh, there taking in a game, and he inadvertently sat in a segregated section meant for black fans. He had a great time. He was talking with fans, talking baseball, and enjoying the game until a couple of policemen came up and informed him that he would have to leave and he couldn't be sitting there. Vec told them to go kick rocks as he should, so the cops, uh, they, uh, they told on Vec, and they called the mayor. <laughs> they, they actually wow. called the mayor. Is that what you do in a situation Well, like I guess uh, back in this time, and uh, I, I, won't, <laughs> I won't make comments on what I think about uh, goes on in Florida. Vec threatened to do, he, so he told the mayor, listen, I'm going to take my team and we're going to go elsewhere then. Instead, he ended up selling the team and he retired, quote unquote, to Tucson, Arizona until he purchased the Cleveland Indians in 1946. Now, we've discussed whether or not Vec was actually planning on signing black players before the color barrier was broken. But regardless of how true or not that story is, he didn't want to go back to Florida. So Cleveland trained in Tucson. Vec convinced the New York Giants, which that's a big deal, to join them. And they uh, started the superior spring training circuit. 
that I'm calling it the superior spring training circuit because you don't have to drive all the way across the state just to get to, you know, from one game to another. That's why Arizona is so much better, especially if you're a fan to go to Arizona because you can go if you just want to go to Mariners games, you can go if you're there for a week, you can get to all the games and still just stay in one uh, one location. Uh, Spring training, though, has not always been in the South. Uh, As I mentioned, during wartime, rail travel was limited. So teams trained in popular tourist locations like French Lick, Indiana, the uh, future home of Larry Bird, because I'm a big NBA fan. Uh, Also lovely locations like College Park, Maryland and Asbury Park, New Jersey. Other times, while the world was not at war, teams headed south, like way south. Like, I'm talking about Havana, Cuba. That's pretty south. Yeah, that's pretty south. Uh, Also, the Dominican Republic, Mexican, and Puerto Rico. California was another popular spot for teams from the east for a while. Teams uh, worked out on Catalina Island, San Bernardino, and Palm Springs. Interesting note, when Philip Wrigley owned the Cubs, wherever the Cubs played and played as the home team, no matter where they were, that uh, stadium where they played was considered Wrigley Field. So there have been Wrigley Fields scattered throughout the country. And, wow. I mean, including, you know, the, the one that we've talked about many times in Los Angeles, where a lot of TV and movies have been shot. But uh, on Catalina Island, when they trained there, there was a Wrigley Field there. And, uh, you know, for a long time, if they played a home game, even if they were just barnstorming, they were playing at Wrigley Field. Las Vegas, Nevada, Honolulu, Hawaii also hosted teams, though, often just for a single year. That's a long road trip if you've got to go to Hawaii for one game and then you've got a home game the next day. That's yeah, that's uh, that's a long trip. Remember the uh, in Arizona, it wasn't it used to not be just everybody in in Phoenix, though. The Rockies and the White Sox trained in Tucson. I mean, up until like a decade ago. I remember just teams hated that. That was an hour bus ride both ways. You did not want to have to make that trip. And then teams also trained in Yuma, I remember, which is not close to Phoenix and out in the middle of nowhere. But I mean, again, this is what happens in Florida. You play in Port St. Lucie one day and then you got to go to Lakeland or Dunedin and that's a long trip that's, you know, you're in the in the car or on a bus for half the day beyond yeah. the game. So. Yeah, no thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. Well, I'm not a big fan of Arizona, but compared to Florida for spring training, I, I certainly am. Today, spring training is big business. Teams are split evenly between Florida and Arizona. I'm not sure, but I think maybe at this point, every single team might have a newer facility to train in. I think the A's, as usual, might have been the last team in Arizona to have an old facility when they played at Phoenix Municipal. Then they took over the Cubs when the Cubs moved, but they redid everything. I think everybody else has got brand new complexes built everywhere because it's such big business. Uh, The Florida Sports Foundation reports an annual economic impact of $753 million per year in Florida from spring training and the Arizona Sports and Tourism Authority reports an estimated impact of 450 million 
per year for Cactus League games. Now, I did dig deeper into that, and much of this is due to the fact that spring training hats are being sold for $50 a piece this year. <laughs> That's half of the profit. My God. I, hats used to be 20 bucks. period. Yes. Like, for, for a fitted hat, you know, not a, a snapback or anything like that. And spring training hats this year are mesh in the back, right? The last two years, those have been the official hats. They're fitted, but they're mesh. 50 bucks. Okay. That's ridiculous, right? It's not just me. No, no. I, I, uh, it's hard for me. Maybe I'm just getting old, but it's hard for me to imagine paying 50 bucks for a baseball cap. Yeah. I mean, like if I was at spring training this year, I would probably lay it down for an Mm -hmm. ace hat. But since I'm not, I am not going to. (laughs) (laughs) I just had to buy a Cubs hat and that was tough enough. So we're not going to, not going to, and that was $40. Oh, well. Not going to wait. Yeah. Not going to, not going to do that. Anyway, I just thought that might be uh, interesting to figure out, uh, to learn about who, uh, who started spring training. When did it start? Why did it start? We now know is to uh, get rid of those hangovers. Besides those long hikes and the hot springs, I imagine there were a lot of guys that would get in those machines that had that long belt that went around a motor that would just jiggle. And (laughs) remember that used to, (laughs) used to be a big weight loss uh, thing to get you in shape. I know exactly what you're talking about. That's the funny thing. (laughs) And then maybe just throwing that medicine ball back and forth for a little bit. That was uh, the the height of physical fitness at that point. So Babe Ruth was probably just shoving hot dogs down his throat while he was, you know, jiggling on that thing. That's right. All right. So there it is. There's spring training. Uh, I hope everybody's enjoying spring training. Like I said, I'm I'm watching it. It's like I'm listening to it on, on my second monitor. I can't get into it. I'm just ready for, for opening day. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to rumble already. And I haven't had a, a scoreboard ops uh, spring training even yet. Well, what are we, you're in midseason form at all. It does, you could wake up and score a game. So well, I'd like to think that. Thank you very much. Yes. But, uh, uh, you know, it took a lot of hard work and you know what, just take it from here. Take it one at a time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, that's going to wrap up the main portion of our show. Time to head into the final segment. This is a big one, Mark. There, uh, there's champagne on ice. Uh, your locker room is uh, covered in plastic, and the commissioner is here. So <laughs> tells you what. If we look at the scoreboard, you have 19 wins to my 16. We are playing to 20. You are the only one that has ever won this title. I believe you've won it twice. Yes, um, I think so. I am not sure. It might be three times. I've lost. I don't even care. I just want to hoist it one time. It is the final, what could be the final Wax Packs Heroes of the uh, of the season. If you win this, you will uh, once again hoist the Golden Pickle. So uh, if you are new here... Well, we got to play the theme first, so just hold on to your uh, hold on to your hats and listen to this because it's time for Wax Pack Wax Pack Hero. Gotta pull the Wax Pack Hero. Wanna podcast tonight? Just forgot the best part of the whole episode here. When yeah. We play the- the theme there, but uh, yes. it is it is time for Wax Packs Heroes. If you're new here, uh, well, let's uh, tell you how this works. We're going to open a couple of 
packs of baseball cards, traditionally from the Wax Packs era. Today, Mark, we're going with some 1989 tops. We are going to add the uh, baseball reference war of everybody in these packs. We'll add those together and see who has the highest total. Uh, a couple of things that we can do to add or subtract to that war. First of all, if we look at the card, anything on the guy's face, that means glasses, eye black, goatee, a mustache, all a tenth of a point extra. If they've got a really good mustache, you get an bonus tenth of a point even. If they're wearing real stirrups that we can see sanitary socks, that's a tenth of a point, but two and ones are a minus tenth of a point. If the player is wearing sweatbands with their caricature or jersey number on it, if they played any of their final three seasons in Seattle, two flaps on their batting helmet or no flaps, or they're batting without batting gloves, every one of those things will get you an extra tenth of a point. If they won any awards the year of the card, that means a Rookie of the Year, Cy Young, MVP, All-Star, or a Gold Glove, half a point for each. If there's a Hall of Famer on the card, even if they are not the focus of the card, a whole extra point of war. If Ricky Henderson or Nolan Ryan show up in either pack, I get five points for Ricky. Mark, you get five for Nolan. And we're both going to pick a team. And uh, just like the Ricky Nolan rule, my team shows up in either pack. I get a half a point. Your team, you get a half a point. Who are you going to go with today? Yeah, I'm going to go with the Phillies. Phillies. Try and get that Vaughn Hayes. I think that's the year. Ah, the old uh, five for one. Uh, Vaughn Hayes. Well, let's see. If you're going to go with the Phillies, I'm going to go with the team that left Philadelphia. I'm going to go, well, no, because that would be the A's, but I'm going to go with the Royals because the A's went to Kansas City first. There you go. All right. So we got the Phillies and the Royals. I got two packs here, Mark. I got uh, one in the left hand and one in the right hand. Which would you like? Let's go right this time. Right. All right. I'm going to have you go first. Uh, just so that you can, you know, have your pitcher on the mound when you when you clinch, and he can throw his glove up in the air, and the catcher can run out and hug him, <laughs> and everybody can collect at the pitcher's mound. And that's you know we're hoping so, but uh, we're not hatcheting. No, I said that last week. Chickens and hatchet, and yeah, we're not counting them. Yeah. Okay, I'm just preparing everybody. All right, okay. so we're going to start out here with a pitcher for the Milwaukee Brewers. He of a uh, no-hitter in his career, Juan Nieves. Uh, nickname Wanchi. Wanchi. Okay. I've never heard that one before. Juan Nieves only pitched for three years in the big leagues. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that either. All for Milwaukee, and uh, 88 was his final season, so... Oh, well, that's fun. That's uh, that's fun for me um, because it doesn't affect me. I can't see anything else on this card. His stirrups are, I'm going to go ahead and just give them to you. I know he's wearing real stirrups. This is 1989, and he's Juan Nieves. That's true. Uh, so you'll get at least a tenth of a point there. Let's see, 1987, no hitter against the Orioles, the second youngest player in Major League history to do so. Hmm. And uh, it wasn't until 19, or it wasn't until 2021 that a another Brewers pitcher threw a no hitter, uh, but it doesn't tell me who. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, also, the first no hitter ever thrown by a Puerto Rican, Juan Nieves. So there we go. Suffered a career ending arm injury went on. Uh, he's been a pitching coach for several teams. Uh, I think the last of which was the Detroit Tigers. Sounds familiar. All right, so uh, you've got uh, a tenth of a point. And I'm going to guess it's probably like Patrick Corbin or somebody. Patrick Corbin, is that a pitcher or a wrestler? Uh, 
Who, who do we think would have been the last brewer to throw a no-hitter? How far back do we have to look again? 2021. 2021. Let's see. 2021, it would have been uh, Corbin Burns. So I had the, I think, I think I did say a wrestler. Corbin Burns, it was a combined no-hitter. Corbin Burns and Josh Hader, September 11th, 2021. Burns went eight. Hader came in uh, and got the save with one inning. They won three to nothing. All right, next, uh, you get a guy. Um, boy, I think this is, uh, he is one of the very few players that have ever been traded between the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland A's. It's Ernest Riles. Ernie Riles, yes. Now, I believe, uh, I think that the 88 Tops podcast did him recently, and I believe there was some controversy at one point his... Uh, his baseball cards had his name spelled with an A in there as well. I'm not sure what was going on there, but uh, Ernie Riles, let's see, nine years in the big leagues. He played for a bunch of teams, Milwaukee, San Francisco, Houston, Boston, and Oakland. No Seattle, though. 1989 for the Giants. Uh, he played everywhere, just about 278 average, 339 on base, seven home runs, 40 RBI, 0 for 6 in steals. That's not uh, not good, but still a 115 OPS plus, and that will equal a 1.9. He's also got a mustache, so that's going to get you a two even. I'll take it. Next uh, is pitcher for Atlanta. It is Jim Acker. Boy, Jim Acker. I mean, it sounds familiar, but maybe you're more familiar with uh, him. I remember Jim Acker. Couldn't tell you a lot about him until I look him up here, where he played 10 years in the big leagues, seven with the Blue Jays, four with Atlanta. And lucky for you, his <laughs> final season, 1992, with your Seattle Mariners. That's right. 17 games, a 5.28 ERA with no record, 30 and two-thirds innings, 11 strikeouts, 12 walks, a 76 ERA plus, and that will be good for a war of oh, it's zero point zero. Oh wow! So he's got negative. Yeah, so he's got a beard, and uh, you get the Seattle bonus there. So you'll actually get a two tenths out of Mr. Jim Acker. So he actually he helped you out a little bit there. Yeah. First round pick by Atlanta in the 1980 draft. And uh, let's see in this card, I can't tell if he's got uh, Chew in both cheeks or if he's just got some chipmunk cheeks going on here in this card. <laughs> All right. Your uh, next card is a picture for the New York Mets. Uh, Terry Leach. Terry Leach. I want to say he was on the 86 Mets. And yeah, he was. Oh, he only appeared six games in the regular season in 1986 for the Mets. Oh, and uh, did not appear in the playoffs that year for them. That's weird how I, I remember him with that 86 team, but uh, I don't know why. Overall, 11 years in the big leagues, seven with the Mets, two with the Twins, two with the White Sox, one with the Royals. 1989, he split time between the Mets and the Royals. He went five and six with a 4.17 ERA, 95 innings, 36 strikeouts, a 91 ERA plus, and all of that will equal a war of minus 0.3. Oh, boy. Well, he's got real stirrups on. How about that? So it'll only be a minus point two for you from uh, Mr. Leach. He's leeching points off of your uh, your total. Yes, he certainly is. I see here, uh, I just happened to read this. Um, he actually had 10 consecutive wins once. Wow. Uh, yeah, on the way to an 11-1 and record. I don't think I got him for that year. 
No. Uh, 87. You, you definitely did not. Uh, Leach made one start with the Mets in 82. The uh, the scheduled starter that day, this is uh, might have been the last day of the season. Oh, second last to last day of the season. Uh, the, the starter got a blister on his hand, and then Mets manager George Bamberger uh, just said, hey, Terry, you're starting in his place. Never started uh, in the big leagues before. He ended up tossing a 10-inning one-hitter against the Phillies. Wow. <laughs> Way to step up, man. Yeah. So uh, that's a good story for him. Well, Tim Leach, uh, he wrote an autobiography, apparently, though. Th- uh, things happen for a reason. The true story of an itinerant life in baseball. I don't know what itinerant means. Um, you know, it's like if somebody's really mad. Oh, that's traveling, traveling from place to place. So a, a no bad esque I guess. He didn't really play for that many teams. <laughs> All right, but Terry, congratulations on the book. All right, you're at 2.1. Uh, next, we get uh, Orioles uh, outfielder DH Larry Sheets. Larry dancing in the sheets. Let's see. Larry Sheets, eight years in the big leagues. Oh, good news for you. Final year, 93 with the Mariners. Yeah, this right is why on. we put this rule in place. The, the late 80s, early 90s, the Mariners were where old baseball players went to die. Uh, let's see, overall eight years in the big league, six with Baltimore, and then a single year with Seattle and Detroit. 1989 with Baltimore as their DH. He hit uh, 243, 305 on base, seven home runs, three RBI, a 90 OPS plus, and that equals a war of minus 0.4. Uh, he does have a mustache on, and he does, uh, he got that Mariner bonus. So that'll only be a minus 0.2. Oh, good. This uh, seems like a pack that I would pick normally. but Yeah, uh, I, 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 I'm not liking it. Well, just wait till we get to mine, I'm sure. All right, next. Oh, you got a manager card. But the good news for you is he's a Hall of Fame manager. Oh, wow, that's good. Uh, he has managed uh, my favorite team once to a World Series. He's also managed the uh, White Sox twice and uh, also won World Series in St. Louis. It is uh, Tony La Russa. All right, so uh, not a fan of Tony's. Uh, we'll just go through some numbers here. Overall, 35 years as a manager. Wow. Uh, 2,884 wins, 2,499 losses, three World Series, uh, two with the Cardinals, one with the A's, six pennants. That's a, that's a long time as a manager. That's quite the career. Uh, let's see, I'm just interested. When he uh, was a player, he was in the big leagues for six years. Uh, five with Oakland, overall a 199 career batting average, 292 on base. I guess if uh, those who can't do teach kind of thing going on there. Yeah, there you go. But uh, yeah, Tony La Russa, let's see, you are going to get the Hall of Fame bonus. Uh, obviously no stats. He is wearing two and ones though, so it's only going to be a point nine. Uh, we're not going to talk about Tony La Russa off the field because... Uh, he is an advocate for animals, which I love, but uh, he was booted off of the uh, board of directors for his uh, animal rescue here in the Bay Area. So if that tells you anything. All right. Next, we've got for the Minnesota Twins. It is uh, what? Me worry? It's Al Newman. Al Newman. In case you didn't get that reference, it's it was a pretty good one. <laughs> Look it up. Al Newman, eight years in the big leagues, five with Minnesota, two with the Expos, and one with the Rangers. 1989 with Milwaukee, one year, uh, I'm sorry, two years off of a World Series ring. 
Uh, he hit 253. He hit 253, 341 on base, no home runs, 38 RBI, 25 stolen bases. That's a career high and a 78 OPS plus, and that equals a 1.6 WAR. That's a solid number for me this game so far. It really is. Nothing else on this card, just head and shoulders. He doesn't have any facial hair or sideburns or anything like that. First round draft pick by the Expos in 1981. At one point, involved in a three-way trade that included names like Scott Sanderson, my guy Carmelo Martinez, and Craig Def Lefferts. In 1992, to commemorate the uh, Twins World Series victory the year before, they issued a uh, set of playing cards with players on each uh, and on them. Al Newman was the three of clubs. There you go. How interesting is that? Yeah, You're not going to find that kind of uh, impressive information no. on other podcasts. No, the, no way. The three of clubs. So you're at 4.4. You only have two cards left. This is, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, your second, well... Yeah, this is going to help you out because this guy was one of the best pitchers uh, of the 80s and 90s for the Toronto Blue Jays, Dave Steeb. Uh, I think we've talked about him a little bit. Just an absolutely yep. fantastic starting pitcher. Great mustache. Yes. You're starting off with a, with a two-tenths of a point mustache right there. Overall, 16 years in the big leagues, 15 with Toronto. I mean, he was the, the rock this pitching staff for a long time 1989 well it's sandwiched in between two of his seven all-star games 17 and 8 though 3.35 era 33 games started three complete two shutouts 206 innings uh let's see 101 strikeouts led the league with 13 hit batters he led the league five times in plunking batters, not afraid to pitch inside. Overall, 109 ERA plus, and that will equal a war of 3.3 plus the mustache. We'll get you a 3.5, uh, and I can't tell about the stirrups. But that's a, that's a pack high for you right there, 3.5. Thank you, Dave Steve. So in the 1980s, Dave Steve won 140 games, second highest total in that decade behind uh, future teammate Jack Morris. Uh, also, I guess when you talk about Dave Steve, you got to talk about no hitters, right? And like the 37 or so that he took to the ninth inning, uh, right. finally getting one in 1990. But man, he was snake bit. He threw more almost no hitters, I think, than anybody probably in baseball history. It seemed that way, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, he was always flirting with a no hitter. Yeah. According to this, currently resides in Reno, Nevada, the uh, biggest little city in the in the world, I believe, where he <laughs> works as a building contractor. And he's also taken up electric guitar. Wow. Uh, let's see. He likewise has a autobiography. Tomorrow I'll be perfect. That's a little tongue in cheek. I like that. All right. So you're at 7.9, your final card. This one will probably help you out again. I mean, he led the league at home runs one year. I'm not sure. We'll find out here. But it's uh, none other than Howard Johnson. Ojo. Ojo. All right. So Howard Johnson, 14 years in baseball. In the big leagues, nine with the Mets, three with the uh, Tigers, and then one apiece with the Rockies and the Cubs. I do not remember that Rockies stint. But 1989, good news for you, all-star that year. Led the league in runs scored. He hit 287, 369 on base, 36 home runs, 101 RBI, 41 stolen bases. He was almost a 40-40 guy that year. Wow, yeah, that's a heck of a year. That's a good year, a 169 OPS+. Plus. 
and that is good for a 6.9 war. He Ooh. was an all-star, so that'll be 7.4, and he's got a mustache. So that'll be 7.5. You almost doubled your score on the last <laughs> card there. Thank you, Howard Johnson. Now, he's got a, a, a sweatband here with the Mets logo on it. You know, no caricature or jersey number on it, but on his batting gloves, he's got his uh, jersey number written on it. But that does not, unfortunately, count. Nope. No. Uh, we've talked about Hojo a lot. He's one of our favorite uh, guys to talk about here. Uh, first round pick by the Tigers as well in 1979. All right, Mark, 15.4. Okay. Yeah, you know what? Respectable. Now, normally I would say I feel confident, but I mean, if my pack is anything like yours, uh, it's probably not going to be a whole lot of fun. Well, you never know, man. You you might have uh, you might have Ricky in there. Well, I do have some gum. Yours didn't have any gum. Mine's got gum. Oh, lucky! All right, first off for Atlanta with uh, a mustache, and that's about it. And I I can never say his last name correctly. Pitcher Joe Bover. Is that how you say it? I think it was Baver. Joe Baver. That's right. Because you, you said that last time and I clearly filed it away to use later. Yes. Nicknames Baver the Saver. That's a good way to, that's a good I mnemonic like device right there. Uh, that's because he was a closer for part of his time, including 1989. Uh, overall, 12 years in the big leagues, uh, four with Atlanta, three with Detroit, then a bunch of other teams, none of which were Seattle. In 89, wow, as their closer... <laughs> he saved 21 games. That's the good news. The bad news is he uh, has a record of 4 and 11. Ooh, ooh. Now, they don't show how many blown saves he had, but if you're going 4 and 11 as a closer, I'm going to say you blew quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> 3.94 ERA, 82 innings, 68 strikeouts, 92 ERA plus. And uh, overall, that's going to be a war of zero. War of zero? It's not a negative. All right. So Baver the Saver, he's got a mustache. That's uh, that's about it, though. So uh, strong start for me with a positive point one. Next, uh, let's see. We've got a Cardinal, and it is none other than catcher Steve Lake. Steve Lake. He played a while, I believe. Steve Lake played for 11 years. Kind of your consummate, you know, backup catcher. Yep. Five with the Cubs, four with the Phillies, three with the Cardinals. 1989 with the Phillies, 58 games, hit 252, 304 on base, two home runs, 14 RBI, 84 OPS plus, and that'll be a it's a .5 war. Plus he's a catcher, so you know he's got a mustache and he's wearing real stirrups. So nice. Be a .7 for me. You got a .7 out of a backup catcher. Yeah, gotta like That's that. That's nice. Uh, wow, get this over his career. He threw out 45.4% of base runners who tried to steal on him. Wow. That ranks ninth on the all-time list. Yeah, that's impressive. That is a heck of a lot of, uh, that's a heck of a lot. <laughs> Let's see, uh, above him, just looking here, Del Crandall, Sherm Lolar, Gus Triandos, Yvonne Rodriguez, Dick Bertrell, Yogi Berra, Clay Dalrymple, and then Roy Campanella is the number one. Roy Campanella threw out 57% of base runners. <laughs> wow. Are you kidding me? That is crazy. Uh, of course, and I think we've mentioned this on great baseball cards, he has a great 1991 studio baseball card where his pet, bird ruffles is sitting on his shoulder that's a it's a card for all time 
This is not that card, though. Ruffles. Ruffles. All right. Next, we've got a guy. We've talked about this guy plenty of times before. This is a great-looking card. Uh, Pitcher for the Red Sox, Dennis Oil Can Boyd. We haven't discussed uh, Oil Can in quite a while, but boy, we used to talk about him a lot. Yeah, he used to come up a lot. Of course, the the term Oil Can was uh, slang for beer, a can of beer, which he was a big fan of. Uh, also had some problems with addiction, but uh, he's doing a lot better. I know he's down at uh, Red Sox Fantasy Camp. He does that a lot. Let's see. Ten years in the big leagues, eight with Boston, two with Montreal, one with Texas. In Boston in 1980, 1988, he went 9-7, and seven, 5.34 ERA, uh, just under 130 innings pitched, 71 strikeouts, and a 78 ERA plus. Wow. In 1985, he led the league with 273 hits given up in 272 innings pitched. Wow, that's uh, that's a lot of innings. That is. Uh, he only walked 67, though, so his whip was 1.248, which is, that's acceptable wow. for a starter, Absolutely. even though he gave up more hits than innings pitched. Wow. Uh, let's see, in 89, that equates to a war of 0.4. He does have mustache, he does have real stirrups, so that'll be a 0.6. His windup kind of reminds me of Satchel Page. It's really an old-timey kind of windup where he would really lean back on that, on that one leg. His mother and father, they were nicknamed Skeeter and Sweetie. <laughs> I guess you have to have a nickname in the Boyd family. Skeeter and Sweetie and Oil Can. I think we've mentioned this before. I know we have because we've talked about him before. Two of his uncles played in the Negro Leagues. KT Boyd for the Kansas City Monarchs and Robert Boyd, who played for the Kansas City Athletics and the Memphis Red Sox. That's pretty cool. Oh, and then a third, his great, great uncle, Benjamin Boyd, played for the Memphis Red Sox and the Homestead Grays. He is also related to Barry Larkin, who is Boyd's father's first cousin. Huh. A lot of baseball uh, legacy there, lineage. Yeah. All right. Next, we've got a guy. I believe he's probably on our do not talk about list. I know we're not huge fans. Here he is, pitcher for the Reds, Rob Dibble. Oh yes, one of the nasty boys. Not one. Not my favorite pitcher of all time. I think he might have been the nastiest of the nasty boys. Right? He's pretty nasty. Yeah. Where he threw the guy bunted on him, and he just. Nailed him with it. Yep. Uh, let's see. Overall, seven years in the big leagues. 1989, he went 10-5 and five with a 2.09 ERA. Two saves, so he was uh, in the setup role at that point before becoming the closer. 99 innings pitched, 141 strikeouts. Wow. That That's is pretty not bad. Good. Yeah, 173 ERA+. plus. The next year, a 229 ERA+. Wow. Wow. Uh, Let's see. Overall, that is good for a war of 3.9 for a middle reliever. That's impressive. Yeah, nothing else. It's just a head and shoulder shot, so nothing else. But that's a big one for me. That'll bump me up to 5.3. Let's see. His career ERA in the playoffs, 0.0. Seven innings, nine and two-thirds innings pitched, three hits, no runs, two walks, 14 strikeouts. One World Series, we won't mention when or against yeah, I, I remember Dibble just used to rear back and just yeah. chuck it. He was a hard thrower. First round draft pick of the Reds in 1983. Uh, it was Tim Tuffle that he threw in the, they just threw in the back. And they probably didn't like the Tuffle shuffle. Or no, 
No, he just he just hit Tim Tuffle and they they brawled. It was Doug Desenzo of the Cubs who he uh, he threw a ball in the back after fielding the uh, the bunt. And then the rest of it we don't talk about. So there we go. All right, 5.3. My next card, well, it wouldn't be a, uh, a Wax Packs Heroes if we don't get pitcher for Atlanta, Zane Smith. Oh, Zane, man, he was everything that team had back in the day. Yeah, he really was. And I saw his name came up uh, when I didn't say anything, but Al Newman. When you had Al Newman, Al Newman has one career home run. That came off of Zane Smith. <laughs> Interesting. Let's see. Zane Smith, 13 years in the big leagues, six with the Pirates, six with Atlanta, two with Montreal, one with Boston. 1980-90 split time between Atlanta and Mon- and Montreal. Overall, one and 13. But his ERA was only 3.49. Uh, so that tells you how those uh, Atlanta teams were 147 innings, wow. pitched 93 strikeouts, a 103 ERA plus. So still a little bit better than league average. And uh, overall, wow, with Montreal, he uh, totaled a 1.6 war with Atlanta, a minus 1.2 war. Wow. So that'll be a positive four war. Oh, he's not doesn't have his beard like he, he does a lot of times. So that'll only get me a positive point four. Yeah, Zane Smith, you, you mentioned uh, some of those Braves teams. He, he, he was a solid pitcher for a really bad team. He was their ace was. for sure before the, you know, the big three came around. Traded for uh, Moises, Al- Moises Alou. I have a hard time saying that name for some reason. Well, this is uh, this seems like this would be on the back of one of his uh, cards. Uh, Zane enjoys listening to hard rock music. <laughs> hey, so do I. I do, too. <laughs> so if, if we are ever in an elevator with Zane Smith, we have something in common. There you go. We won't bring up baseball or baseball history. No, it's like, uh, you know, I like hard rock, Zane. I hear you do, too. <laughs> All right. Uh, next pitcher for the New York Mets, it's Bobby Ojeda. Ojeda. Ojeda had some good years. The game I uh, always like to play is, uh, was uh, Ojeda in 1986, was he on the winning uh, World Series team or the losing World Series team? Yes. <laughs> he was on your well you're correct yeah absolutely yes. he's on the winning world series team his first year in new york after being uh, a red Sox for the beginning of his career 15 years in the big league six with boston five with the mets two with the dodgers one apiece with the yanks and cleveland all right let's see in 1989 he went 13 and 11 for the mets 3.47 era 192 innings pitched only 95 strikeouts and that is good for a 94 era plus and uh, that is a war of positive 0.9. I guess I'll take it. Hmm. It does have real stirrups, too. So that'll get me a whole one. That takes me up to 6.7. I am not moving quickly. I found this little ditty on Mr. Ojeda. He, a, uh, a, a ditty is typically a song. So if you're going to sing, just warn us. Uh, I'll, I'll just quote it. Uh, he was the winning pitcher in the longest professional baseball game in history. Oh, so that 33-inning game that we've talked That's about? Right. He started the 33rd and when the game was resumed two months later and got the W. I, don't even, I do not believe he was on either roster when that game started. But, <laughs> yep, that's right. Also, uh, won the, as we said, the World Series in 86 with the Mets. Uh, always mentioned this. He was on uh, one of the boats and was the lone survivor in 93 of that boating accident. It unfortunately took the lives of Steve Olin and Tim Cruz. 
as yeah. well. I think that was, was that during spring training? Yeah, March 22nd. So that would have been. Yeah, I remember that being a very sad day. I remember that too. I remember, I remember exactly where I was when I heard that news. All right, so I'm at 6.7. I've got three cards left. I got a lot of work. Uh, I'm not sure pitcher for the Cubs, Frank DePino, is going to help me a whole bunch. <laughs> not DePoto, DePino. Yeah, Frank DePino. Like a wine? Frank DePino Noir. <laughs> well, let's see if this was a good year for him. 12 years in the big leagues, five with Houston, three with the Cardinals and Cubs, and then the Royals and the Brewers for one apiece. In 89 with St. Louis, wow, uh, vulture alert, 9-0 and in 67 appearances. Wow. I'll take it. Uh, didn't start at all, didn't finish a game, well, he finished eight games, no saves, but a 2.45 ERA, 9-0. and Rest of the pitching staff loved him. Oh, yeah. 88 and a third innings, 44 strikeouts, a 148 ERA plus, and that will equal a war of 1.4. I can't see his stirrups here, so that'll just be a 1.4 for the 9 and 0 Frank DePino Noir. You know, when uh, whenever we interview ball players, I always like to ask them who, or you do too, how how uh, who was the player that they fared best against and who had their number. And it's interesting to look at DePino. Uh, he had the best batting average against for any pitcher who faced Tony Gwynn more than 10 times. Yeah, well, I think that's just slightly uh, because he's faced him more than once. That's a little bit more. Remember Vance Law, uh, when he was our guest, talked about dominating Tony Gwynn when oh, Vance, yeah. <laughs> the one time he pitched and uh, Tony Gwynn mentioned that that was one his one career at bat he'd like to have over. But you're right. DePino uh, one, uh, ended up uh, Tony Gwynn ended up going one for 20 with three walks against Frank DePino. Man, there's a guy, if you if you want to have somebody's number, Tony Gwynn is one. That's one to brag about. If I'm Frank DePino, whenever I meet anybody new, the very first thing out of my mouth is, hey, did you know that Tony Gwynn went one for 20 against me? <laughs> career? <laughs> absolutely. That is absolutely the first thing out of my mouth. Uh, DePino, also the winning pitcher for the Cubs in the first official night game played at Wrigley Field, 1988. Hmm. Another thing to hang your hat on. My uh, penultimate card here with the Orioles. It is none other than Craig Worthington. Are you going to say Craig Worthington and his dog spot? No, I was not going to. Uh, oh, I'm not either then. <laughs> oh, got to love Cal Worthington if you're from the <laughs> West Coast growing up. Craig, seven years in the big leagues, four with the Orioles, two with Texas, one Cincinnati, one Cleveland. In 1989, his second year in the big leagues, uh, came in fourth in the rookie of the year balloting, played 145 games at uh, third base for the Orioles, ended up hitting 247, 334 on base, 15 home runs, 70 RBI, a 106 uh, OPS plus. The rookie of the year that year for the American League, uh, well, let's see. He finished just behind Ken Griffey Jr., who came in third behind Greg Olson. Wow. It's not often Ken Griffey Jr. does not win something. Uh, Worthington picked twice uh, in the first round, once by the Cubs and then the Orioles. Uh, he did go on to play in Japan for the Hanshin Tigers and was a Tops All-Rookie selection. So he did have that little cup for a while. Uh, he did play, let's see, in Hanshin, only 22 games. That's about standard, right? Uh, yep. 267. He also played uh, in the uh, CPBL for the China Trust Wales, six games. 
So just he's not really a stick to it guy when he leaves the country. Yeah. But uh, yeah, there you go. Craig Worthington. All right, I'm at 8.1. I got one card left here. Mark, they're already popping bottles back there. I can hear it in your locker room, and I don't appreciate it. <laughs> I told the bad boys not to be doing that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think they can go ahead and start because my final card is a uh, pitcher for the Expos, Floyd Yeomans, who <laughs> I do not believe is going to get me seven points of war. Probably not. I don't remember Yeomans having a huge year. You know, not throwing shade at Floyd Yeomans, but I just I don't think he was that type of player. Right. Uh, let's see. Five years in the big leagues, four with Montreal, one with the uh, one with the Phillies. That would be 1989, where he went one in five with a 5.7 ERA, 63 ERA plus and a minus 0.6 war. Yada, yada, yada. Uh, well, he was traded for Gary P- Carter at one point. Uh, hmm. And the and Kevin Gross, who we've talked about uh, earlier. Or no, that was Steve Lake. Never mind. Uh, Floyd Yeomans, uh, not going to get it done. Uh, a childhood friend of Dwight Gooden. And uh, yeah, that's going to be it. And that is going to mark, it's going to wrap up the season. That's win number 20 for you. And you are now officially the first and the only back-to-back-to-back Wax Packs Heroes champion. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you, and, I, and I'm glad that you didn't use the word three-peat because you have to pay Pat Riley. Yeah, some. That, that's that's copyrighted, and we, we will not do that. Pat Riley, you will not get money from us, even though I do realize that Mark just said the word. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, Mark, congratulations uh, once again. I feel like this is the closest. Uh, 16 wins is the most I've ever uh, accrued in one season so i guess i'll have to hang my hat on that or headed in the right direction hey if you have any uh, problems hearing me it's because i just got champagne on my microphone no oh, are you wearing the goggles so the champagne doesn't sting your eyes no i actually like that feeling yeah. it's weird yeah well uh, jokes on you we, did, we can't afford champagne so that is just sparkling apple cider oh well, but nonetheless yeah, nonetheless, congratulations. I don't know why you said you were feeling a little bit tipsy. I think it's just a placebo effect. But congratulations, you are once again the uh, Wax Packs Heroes Grand Poobah. And, uh, yeah, we'll take a week or two off where we'll just play some exhibition games. I think we'll open the new season come the first season of the uh, the Major League Baseball regular season. How about that? That we'll sounds good. Try to go. flesh out some new rules. We'll make some tweaks. We might add a, a pitch clock. We don't know. Might happen. But uh, that <laughs> is going to wrap it up for another season of Wax Packs Heroes. Also going to wrap up this episode. We've talked about spring training. Uh, we've talked about pitch clocks uh, a lot, uh, believe it or not. And uh, as well as some umpire ejections and uh, grand slams. A whole bunch of stuff. But uh, thank you for listening. If you want more of us, you can find us all over the Internet. All you have to look for, go to, a, go to an app, any app, and just search for user two strike noise. That is uh, TWO Strike Noise. Uh, you can find us on all the socials. And uh, we also have an email that Mark will uh, tell you about here. Yeah, you can write to us at Two Strike Noise. Spell it out. TWO Strike Noise at gmail.com. If you don't get an immediate reply, do not fret and do not worry. Uh, we'll get back to you. Possibly. So, yeah. But uh, we enjoy uh, hearing from you, uh, unless you're going to yell at us uh, about weird things on our phone number. Which I still kind of enjoy that. 
Yeah. Well, <laughs> if you do want to call us and, and you don't like to type and you're you're more of a, a, a verbal person, you can call us. The phone number is in the show notes. You can call us and uh, leave us uh, whatever you want. I got a new question I think I'm going to ask on the on the on the hotline. I guess it's a warm line. It's not really a hotline, you know. Right, it's not quite hot yet. No, but uh, we will get to that. But uh, we want to thank everybody once again for uh, tuning in. We'll see you next week on another episode of Two Throw Over Noise. Thank you. God bless you. Have a great day. <laughs>